So hello and welcome to the IJGC Mentor Podcast. As editorial fellows, we wanted to learn from the amazing leaders in our field and take inspiration from their experiences. Today, we are honored to speak with Professor Nadim Aburustum as Chief of MSK Gynecologic Service. Over the past 20 years, he has pioneered many of the surgical approaches that he used to treat stage one cervical cancer, such as radical trochalectomy. Additionally, he led the info to investigate and utilize tantilan left node mapping. He served as a member of the Gynecologic Oncology Group Cervix Committee and the American College of Surgeons Committee on Emerging Surgical Technology and Educational. With me today is Dimitrios from the USA, Felix from Spain, Arthur from Taiwan, Natalie from Jamaica, and I am Florian from France. Thank you uh, for joining us, Professor Aborosdom. Thank you so much. It's nice to meet you all. Thank you for organizing, and it's my pleasure to be with you. Thank you. So my first question is, could you share with us about your background? What led you to join oncology and will you still choose this specialty? Thank you. So I was uh, born in Lebanon, in the north of Lebanon, went to a school in Lebanon and to medical school in Beirut at the American University of, my, of Beirut. Um, Uh, there were physicians in my family. My dad was a physician. He was uh, at a neck surgeon and an ophthalmologist. My uncle was an OBGYN. And when I went to med school, I was uh, drawn to GYN oncology. Uh, there was a big need for it. Uh, at that time, we did not have anyone in the country that was uh, formally trained in GYN oncology. And there was a lot of uh, Uh, need to, to have that specialty developed uh, further. So to me, that was uh, very interesting to continue in that path. And during my uh, med school years, I went to the United States and did a rotation uh, in Baltimore and also in Miami, solidified my interest in GYN oncology, and then eventually came to the United States, did my residency, did my fellowship, and stayed in the field. So that's a quick summary of uh, <laughs> my beginnings. Thank you so much. Um, my second question is, what have been the most exciting moments of your career? That's a great question. You know, for going back from uh, med school to residency, I think being accepted into a GYN oncology fellowship was always a huge uh, highlight for me because uh, it is competitive in the United States and Uh, going back to the early 90s, uh, coming from abroad as a foreign medical graduate, it was always very challenging. So I was very fortunate to be able to get accepted into fellowship at Sloan Kettering. Uh, Dr. William Hoskins was the chief at that time and had a lot of influence on me. So that was definitely a huge highlight. And then during my career as a GYN oncologist, Uh, being able to work with an amazing group of uh, physicians uh, in multiple locations and particularly in New York at Sloan Kettering. And then in 2014, uh, being able to uh, uh, become the service chief uh, was a huge honor and a, a lot of responsibility that I um, really uh, admire. And I think it's a huge uh, uh, part of my life now. So um, those two moments were very special for me. Thank you so much for this so interesting uh, answer. Um, my last question, 
uh, is uh, were there any difficulties that you encounter and could you share with us the wisdom of how we solved it? Well, definitely, as all of you probably have, we have lots of difficulties uh, as we go through life and uh, as physicians and as uh, um, family members. So um, life is filled with challenges. And uh, I think for me, from a medical standpoint, uh, when looking at my career, um, one of the naturally uh, expected challenges would be as a, an immigrant to the United States coming from abroad that would definitely uh, was a challenge to overcome that. But again, I was fortunate and able to work uh, in a great country, in a great environment with lots of amazing colleagues who uh, accepted me and were able to nourish me and help me and guide me. Um, and again, in order for me to stay here, I had to also do payback and work uh, part of uh, the first four years of uh, post-fellowship uh, uh, employment was to do payback time Uh, in a government uh, hospital, which I thought also was uh, important and rewarding. So I think, you know, a big challenge would always to try to find a, a mentor for you uh, at this point. And I think it's very, very hard to find uh, good mentors. And um, I think it's uh, critical to, to really have a mentor during your first job, your first employment as a young GYN oncologist. Mentors can play a huge role in helping you avoid mistakes, uh, giving you their experience, and also uh, guiding you to help find your path and your future. So trying to find a, a mentorship uh, or a mentor that's uh, committed to helping you is always a big challenge. Thank you so much. Uh, over Felix now. <laughs> so thank you for being with us today, Dr. Borussum. My question is just about the Sentinel's new node mapping. And could you share with us the, the, the story of the involvement of the Sentinel leaf node mapping in gynecology oncology? So uh, thank you for that question. I, I think it's an it's a interesting question. And the history of medicine is also very interesting. So I can give you uh, a little bit of a perspective from the institution that I work with, because not a lot of people probably know that, then I can also focus a little bit more on the sentinel nodes for endometrial cancer and uterine cancer. So uh, just from a historical standpoint, the uh, concept of uh, sentinel node mapping, uh, as we know it today in modern medicine, probably started with uh, Ramon uh, Cavanias, who was a surgical oncologist from Paraguay. And he was... Um, an extremely talented surgeon who worked uh, for many, many years in his country, in Paraguay, operated on a lot of uh, men with uh, uh, penile cancer, with hugely advanced disease, did a lot of on-block resections with groin dissections. And at that time, he started the concept of injecting colored dyes uh, to try to find uh, nodes uh, that he thought would be important as part of these on-block resections and really Uh, was able to put hundreds and hundreds of cases in his thesis because uh, back time you would have you had to collect several hundred cases of your patients, present them to a board at the university to then be recognized as a, a surgeon uh, oncologist for cancer, and he did that. And I've had the opportunity to look at his work and his book, and he's still alive and is a friend, and I meet with him regularly. Eventually, he was able to come 
and trained in the 70s at uh, Memorial Sloan Kettering because of relationships that our institution had with um, uh, a previous uh, chief of the gastric and mixed tumor. His name is Dr. George Pack, who had a large and very influential oncology group, including uh, colleagues in South America. So the boss of Ramon Cabanas was able to create a channel for him to be able to come and work. And he actually uh, worked with Dr. Whitmore, who was the chief of urology at MSK for several years uh, as a young surgeon fellow and was able to actually finally publish his work in English because he needed a lot of help to translate his work. He was not very fluent in English, so he needed a lot of help to put his thoughts that were in his native language in Spanish to, to put them in a manuscript in English, which was the uh, first pioneering work that he did. So a lot of the history of the origins of SLN uh, go back to early uh, young surgeons who were working at Sloan Kettering. So I was always impressed with that. From the endometrial standard, uh, cancer standpoint, I think the story is a little bit different. And, and this started about uh, 20 years ago because there was a significant amount of um, variation. If, if you came in the 1990s, in the early 90s, or even up to uh, the end of the 90s and asked somebody, how would you treat endometrial cancer upfront, apparent stage one endometrial cancer? You'd ask 10 people, you'd get 10 answers. And that was a huge problem because there was no standardization. Uh, everybody was using their own protocols. Everything seemed to work okay, but it was not standardized. It was not accepted. So some would use frozen section to decide if they want to do nodes or not. And the entire variation and the entire controversy was not about the hysterectomy, was not about doing washings or an omental biopsy. It was all about the lymph nodes. So the, the entire community of GYN oncology treating our most common disease, endometrial cancer, was completely not in agreement about what to do with the lymph nodes. There were many European schools who do not perform pelvic lymph node dissection up until this day and the results are fine. And there were people who were recommending complete pelvic and periodic lymphadenectomy to the renal. And again, those results were not scalable and it was not feasible in all of our patients. Many of the guidelines that were written were confusing and were not standardized. And actually, if you went around and looked at people, how they're doing things, and you looked at their databases, you saw that the guidelines were not being applied. And it was also a nightmare from an educational standpoint, because you had fellows and you want to teach them how to treat endometrial cancer, but there was no standard. Like I said, some people would do pelvic nodes. Some people would send the uterus for frozen section. Some people would do pelvic and periodic. So, and I was always fascinated with lymph nodes because as I transitioned from OBGYN to GYN oncology, one of the very early differences that you notice between being an OBGYN and GYN oncologist. Now, all of a sudden, you're removing lymph nodes. So you didn't remove lymph nodes as a general OBGYN. As a GYN oncologist, you have to do that. So I was always fascinated in studying lymph nodes. And I had the opportunity to build a database for our endometrial cancer patients that had thousands and thousands of patients at Sloan Kettering. And really looking at the database, looking at the amount of confusion, wanted to come up with some form of standardization for our most common disease to come up with an operation that can be done on the vast majority of the patient, can be taught, is precise, is accurate, 
um, is um, able to give us information about the disease and help guide adjuvant therapy. It may not be perfect, but it will also put a lot of weight on the importance of surgery and surgical precision because surgery remains the most important treatment for endometrial cancer. The, um, the concept of SLN was born really from work that initially started in cervix cancer where we were injecting the cervix. Then we started injecting the uterus, uh, the fundus and the cervix, and then eventually figured out that a cervical injection is probably as good as a fundal and cervical injection. But there was a lot of disagreement in the beginning. You probably don't know this now, but there was a lot of disagreement and pushback against a cervical injection to map endometrial cancer because people were fixated on injecting the tumor or peritumular a tumoral injection, which is not necessary. Now we know you can map the uterus fairly well in the pelvis with a cervical injection. So that, that's a, a quick history about the concept of... Uh, SLN and why I was drawn to it. And, and I think it, it really uh, ended up helping at least for our group to standardize the care and come up with one standard where we can say now everybody's practicing the same, same. We can teach our fellows the same. And a lot of people in the community in medical centers throughout the world are gradually standardizing and coming up with, with a little bit more of a uh, standard procedure for this disease. So looking at the future now, what, what do you think is the next step for sentinel lymph node, at least in endometrial cancer? Yeah, I think it's a, it's a surgical procedure. So I think it needs to be continued to um, evaluated and studied and criticized and fine-tuned as we go on. I think it's a great tool to teach pelvic surgery because it requires precision. Uh, it requires accuracy. It, uh, it's uh, patient-specific. Uh, so it's a very useful tool to teach good pelvic anatomy and understand the drainage of the uterus and the cervix. I think the information that you can get from treating early cervix cancer with SLN and early endometrial cancer with SLN is also, uh, you can mix that knowledge and learn from both. So you, you don't need to completely isolate cervix from uterus. You can learn from the experience of both because the injection technique is the same. The drainage following a cervical injection can be generalizable between the two. So there's an opportunity to learn for both diseases uh, from uh, doing more and more SLN. I think um, uh, future studies are uh, uh, things that we wanted to, to really see are, are happening now. There are lots of studies looking at oncologic outcome, which I think is very good. And again, it's important for us to, uh, to really remember that, you know, when we started mandating pelvic and periodic lymphadenectomy for endometrial cancer, it was not based on prospective randomized trial that showed, <coughs> excuse me, it was not based on prospective randomized trials that showed that women were living longer if you did pelvic and periodic lymphadenectomy. Pelvic and periodic lymphadenectomy for staging was really adopted based on GOG clinical pathologic data that showed that if you actually do the sampling and you do the dissection, you find disease outside of the uterus. But it was never meant to make people live longer. So it's a very important point for young GYN oncologists to remember that the mandate of doing pelvic and periodic lymphadenectomy with staging was never uh, 
said that we do this because people will live longer. And I think, as you probably know, the randomized trials with all the criticism that's been said have not been shown to show that people live longer. There are ongoing studies now looking at uh, lymphadenectomy and survival again. There are ongoing studies looking at SLN with backup lymphadenectomy to look at survival again. So we have to wait and see if, if the removal of more uh, lymph nodes, more normal appearing lymph nodes will make people live longer. And I think that's an exciting area. And I think if there are improvements and things that need to change and things that need to be uh, modified, then we should all be open to doing that. Thank you. Thank you for your answer. So my last question is, founding and organizing prospective trials is always a challenge. What would be your advice to all the young gynecologists, oncologists, in order to succeed con conducting prospective trials? So thank you. That's a great question. And, and one of my um, important uh, missions beginning in 2014 when I became service chief is to try to move the research program more and more into prospective and less and less into retrospective. All of us have done a lot of retrospective studies. They tend to be easier. They tend to be quicker. The data is there. If you have a good database, you can work and answer questions. So there's nothing wrong with retrospective studies. I think they're important. They're good when you're a resident or a young fellow to, to try to do some of these projects to answer some questions that are uh, that need to be answered. But my message to young uh, fellows and to young GYN oncologists is you absolutely have to invest into prospective studies. So we are surrounded by questions around us every day, every treatment planning conference, every tumor board, you will see numerous questions that come up that we still don't have very good answers for. And those questions are best addressed with a prospective study. You don't always have to do a prospective randomized trial, but you can do a prospective study that can still answer an important question. Whether it's a question in the lab, whether it's a question, a clinical question, whether it's a surgical question, there's no, no comparison between doing something prospectively versus retrospectively. And I think these studies can most of the time be accomplished in two, three, four years. And all of us in this field, you know, you, you, you become a GYN oncologist or a surgeon because this is going to be your life. This is your career. So you don't need to put a time frame on, on these projects. And I think uh, what we try to do with our fellows is to try to make sure at least they have one prospective, if not more, as soon as they are on board in their first year, because it's so, they learn so much better to do it that way. And I think the results and the conclusions from a prospective study are so much more uh, valuable and recognized uh, academically as opposed to writing multiple retrospective studies. So I would encourage all the young GYN oncologists who would be listening to this is to try to find questions that are intriguing to them and figure out a way with their mentors or their senior partners to figure out a prospective way to answer these questions. Again, it doesn't have to be a prospective randomized trial. Thank you. So now I think Arthur has some questions. Um, yes, uh, 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 Dr. Abir we are so honored to have you here and uh, I have these uh, questions. Could you share with us uh, why and how you developed a radical trachelectomy in uh, stage one cervical cancer? Thank you. 
so thanks again for uh, the question. So just to be clear and to be fair to the history of the procedure, um, radical trachelectomy uh, began and was pioneered in Europe and was introduced to uh, uh, our generation of GYN oncologists uh, uh, by Professor Daniel Dargent from France. So he was really the pioneer who, who did this procedure through the vaginal route which was a modification of the radical vaginal hysterectomy. He modified the Schauta operation to do the radical vaginal trachelectomy, which we call the Dargent procedure. So Daniel Dargent really was the person who brought this to GYN oncologists. Now, before Professor Dargent, the operation was also attempted in Europe uh, by Aboral um, and uh, uh, also by uh, Kovac. So there were several other European surgeons who came before uh, Dargent who tried to do the operation abdominally, but was not very successful uh, from an obstetrical standpoint. He was uh, the first one who was able to do the procedure successfully vaginally and then achieve good oncologic outcome and good obstetrical outcome. For us in the United States, uh, me and myself and others have worked here. I think for me, the pioneering work came uh, of doing this operation on pediatric patients. I think we were the first to do this on young pediatric patients, age six and eight, who came in, who we were not able to uh, do this procedure vaginally through the Dajon method, but we had to do it abdominally. And for us, you know, beginning 20 years ago, really built a, a program on fertility sparing surgery to try to spare the fundus tubes and ovaries, remove the cancer, be precise about it, reconstruct, cure the tumor, and still maintain fertility. So I think uh, a lot of uh, my contribution was probably, again, in the concept of standardizing the procedure, uh, mostly through the abdominal route, because the vaginal route was completely... Uh, planned and organized by Daniel Dargent. I also have to give a lot of credit to um, Professor Laszlo Angar from Budapest, Hungary. Laszlo is a phenomenal surgeon who's done a ton of work uh, on abdominal trachelectomies. Um, and I remember the first time we published on a pediatric uh, radical trachelectomy, he called me and he said, you know, we've been doing this on adults and we became very good friends and we've operated many times together. And he used to give phenomenal courses in Europe every year. And I visited with him and he visited with our institution. So really this advancement came from multiple uh, uh, important people in the field with a huge contribution from your European colleagues. Uh, thank you so much for your an uh, for your answer. I think this makes so much more uh, so much more sense uh, for you to talk about the history. And it's amazing that we know that it was started in pediatric patients that couldn't be done through vagina. And thank you. And um, I have a following question. I think you have touched base on this, but. I'd like to, uh, to explore more. Uh, a lot of your work concentrates on minimizing surgical morbidity and radicality. Uh, uh, back in those years, what led you to uh, this interest? Thank you. So another great question, and thanks again. And, you know, um, radicality has to be tailored. I mean, of course, we all do still big operations, pelvic exenterations, the bulking resections, etc. And sometimes that's what you have to do. But I think for, for me, um, 
trying to understand the disease process, particularly when we're talking about stage one or clinical stage one, where we're dealing with a relatively early tumor that may potentially have microscopic spread, uh, trying to be more precise to understand the biology better, to understand the routes of spread, to try to tailor the operation to remove the tumor and the potential areas at risk and potentially preserve, preserving quality of life, body image, and the reproductive uh, function was, was really an important uh, part of my work and my um, my mission in, as a GYN oncologist. And I have to say, uh, looking back at the last 30 years in medicine and what I've done in GYN, probably the most rewarding from a clinical practice standpoint was the fertility sparing surgery. And when I see young patients who came in with these tumors that we were able to remove and preserve fertility, and then 10 years later, they come and they have two kids and they're cured. I mean, there's nothing more rewarding than the ability to be able to provide a treatment that can fix a problem, maintain quality of life, maintain body image, and the ability to have children uh, yourself. Uh, it absolutely is one of the most rewarding things. So, and I think that's what the future should be. We should try to be much more precise and much more smart about things. Again, there are diseases and there are conditions where you cannot, where you have to go all out and do big resections, and that's absolutely appropriate, needs to be studied and needs to continue to be uh, taught and practiced. So, But there are more and more opportunities in GYN oncology to be precise. And I think as we are able to reach out to more people who may have earlier disease, and try to uh, do more precise surgery. So it's not less surgery, it's actually more precise individualized surgery. The surgery will still take time, it's still very precise, it still requires understanding of the anatomy. In fact, you have to be much more knowledgeable about what you're doing if you're gonna do something like this. Um, and it's an in incredibly important tool for teaching um, how to practice and how to work with cervix cancer and endometrial cancer and try to cure the disease, but maintain uh, body image and body function. And, and patients do like that. And I think patients, uh, um, many patients would choose that. Over the years, a lot of what we do in stage one cervix cancer has evolved from radical hysterectomy. I mean, when I was a resident, if you had a two, three millimeter adenocarcinoma of the cervix, you had a RADHIS, VSO, tubes and ovaries were removed, and a pelvic lymphadenectomy. I mean, these patients today are treated with a cone and SLN. So you can see how much the field has changed. And even in our own practice, the amount of radical hysterectomy has diminished. We did a lot of trachelectomies, and now we're doing less trachelectomies because we're doing more cone and SLN. So you can see the evolution over a 25 year period to be much more precise, but all of that requires excellent pathology, excellent workup, complete understanding of patient selection. So you have to be very careful of how you select your patients so you can actually tailor uh, and not just use one formula on everybody that has, you know, what's called a stage 1A2 or 1B1 cervix cancer and everybody gets the same procedure. Thank you so much, Professor. I think uh, as uh, many people say that we are in a precision medicine era and uh, some students think that it's only about medicine, but when you are saying that this is e even more about surgery, we do more precise surgery, more tailored surgery, I think this really inspired me and uh, all of us.
Thank you. And uh, my following question is that you lead in development and improvement of surgical techniques and oversee your surgical research programs. What are your tips for being a medical leader and innovator? Thank you. So again, quality uh, remains uh, probably the most important uh, up at the same level with patient safety. So in my mind, overseeing a surgical program, our top priority is quality of what we deliver, quality of care and patient safety. So those have to remain always at the very top. Our institution here has a very simple mission that has three arms. One is the best patient care, two, best research, three is education. So these are the, and you can see the arrow next to me with the three bars. So that's what the three bars mean. Um, uh, on the sign of MSKCC. So it's patient care, research, and education. And I think when you're, when you're in charge of a, a, a surgical oncology uh, program and practice, maintaining the highest quality, by being there for your partners, by discussing cases, by having the weekly tumor board meetings, by presenting all the challenging cases, by listening to others and their concerns, and by involving all the five elements of our disease management team, which is basically surgery, medical oncology, radiation oncology, pathology, and radiology, in addition to our basic science and translational lab. So this is a multidisciplinary team and you have to listen to the feedback and the concern and the recommendations of all the team members uh, to provide the best quality for our patients. And again, when we propose studies or clinical trials, those have to be vetted among a group. We want to make sure everybody's on board. We want to make sure that you're doing the right thing. Make sure that you're not overlapping with others and that you're answering an important question that's worth, worth the investment of time, effort, and patience to participate in these studies. So maintaining the highest quality of care and also keeping patient safety always as a top priority really is, is the most important part of what I do now. Thank you so much, Professor. Thank you so much for sharing this with us. And now I think Natalie has some questions. Thank you for these answers you've provided us with so far. And my first question is, the field of gynecologic oncology is highly competitive, as you mentioned earlier. And uh, there are many persons who would like to pursue a fellowship in this field. Um, what do you look for in a trainee or a fellow? So that's a great question. We have, um, we have a U.S. fellowship, a four-year fellowship for U.S. graduates. We also have an international fellowship that we take international graduates. They come spend two years with us uh, training in surgery to go back home and build programs in their country. We also have research fellowships for ovarian and endometrial cancer. For the clinical fellows, it's, it's simple. We're, we're looking for somebody that's going to come spend at least four years with us to be part of the team, to be a, a partner. And I can't tell you how much we rely on our fellows, not just to, to help with patient care, but also to, to uh, be really uh, team leaders as, as they run the team uh, among the fellows, with the residents, with our nursing staff, with our medical students that rotate. So I think the one of the most important characteristics would be the candidate has to be genuinely a team player, meaning we're not interested in people who are just coming for only self-promotion. And you really have to be a team leader 
by every measure of that word. And, and that requires a lot of sacrifice and hard work. And again, you need to be open-minded because you're working in a very big, diverse environment. You have lots of opinions and lots of thoughts and you cannot be rigid. So rigidity is not a good criteria for a candidate in, in training. You need to be flexible. I'm not saying that you can't have an opinion and you cannot be firm about your thoughts, but you also have to have the flexibility to hear what others are saying because their viewpoint may also be very important. So flexibility is important. Rigidity is not a great criteria when you're trying to, to, to become a fellow. And also to have uh, intellectual curiosity, meaning we're interested in, in people who come and really are interested in what we do. Um, they're interested in the diseases that we're treating. They're interested in our patients and they have ideas and thoughts and they want to try to answer questions that haven't been answered. So uh, you're looking a lot at the human element and the qualities of the human element much more than the, much more than the accomplishments scientifically when you're hiring a fellow. In other words, I don't need the candidate to have published 50 papers or have three chapters. Actually, I'm a lot more interested in somebody who really meets the uh, bullet points that I mentioned, wants to learn, wants to uh, figure out how to uh, answer a question, wants to do a study, uh, has uh, intellectual curiosity about what we do, whether it's cervix, vulva, endometrium, ovary, and again, to be open-minded and flexible. So it's a lot about uh, choosing a partner for the next four years uh, that's open-minded and flexible and really hardworking because fellowship is hard work. Thank you for reminding us about those important points. And um, my next question is, who was the main mentor or mentors who helped to shape your career in gynecologic oncology? That, that's a great question. And mentors are incredibly important. Um, during my residency, when I was in Baltimore, um, Dr. Francis Grombein, Bing Grombein, was the main GYN oncologist in the hospital that I was in. And there's no question that he had a huge influence on me um, during my four years of OBGYN, seeing him and how he took care of patients and how he was really the main consultant for all the difficulties and all the challenges that were uh, seen in the OBGYN department. So he was a huge influence, Dr. Grombein. And then during my fellowship, um, the chief of the service, when I was hired as a uh, fellow and eventually as an attending, Dr. Bill Hoskins, William Hoskins, was an incredible leader in our field and a huge um, influence on me as well. And also many of the surgeons that were in our department at that time, Dr. John Lewis, who was the previous uh, chief before Dr. Hoskins, Dr. John Curtin, who was a phenomenal surgeon and teacher, had a lot of influence on me. And of course, I've spent uh, more than 20 years of my life working with Dr. Richard Barakat, who's an incredible uh, GYN oncologist, very influential and um, absolutely uh, influenced me in many ways. So I've had the fortune of working with a lot of uh, uh, incredible, uh, legendary uh, GYN oncologists and and these were just in, in the institutions that I was in, but I've also had incredible influence uh, from people outside of the United States, um, in Europe and elsewhere that I've worked with and have been incredible influence uh, in the way they conducted themselves. They taught, uh, built friendships with me, and I've been very fortunate to, to have many of those in Europe and elsewhere. 
Thank you for sharing with us some of your mentors. And my last question, we have such a diverse group represented here, and but oftentimes this doesn't get reflected in clinical trials. So how can diversity in clinical trials be improved? That's a very, very important question. And um, I'm glad that you brought this up. The way that I see it is the best way to improve diversity is to really educate patients about the importance of participating in a clinical trial. I think sometimes patients don't understand how important it is to participate in a clinical trial. Sometimes there may be the concept that you're just using the patient because you want to finish the study and you want to write a paper or you want to get something published or you're doing some kind of an experiment because you work with a drug company or a device company. And I think for us and for you, it's so important to spend that effort with patients to really try to educate them of how important it is to participate in a clinical trial, particularly if we have a group of patients that are not represented well, and we need more of those patients. But again, with this comes an enormous amount of effort and dedication. So again, here's the challenge for us is how much time are we willing to sit and talk to our patients about the importance of clinical trial? When you're trying to explain to them about their disease, schedule their surgery, do all the other testing, do the paperwork, talk to the family. So it really boils down to how much commitment of time and effort we as GYN oncologists are willing to put with our patients to really uh, alert them and and tell them about the importance of participating in clinical trial. And that can be done in many ways. There are many institutions that start the process of presenting clinical trials even before patients come to your clinic. In other words, you know that this patient is coming to see you, let's say, in 10 days because she has a new endometrial cancer. So pre-visit, uh, a lot of institutions are now are doing pre-visit consultations to get some information from the patient, provide them some information about what to expect, also present some concepts of the available clinical trials at this institution. So all of this may help uh, increase our, um, our accrual to clinical trials, particularly in uh, populations where we have not been able to reach uh, those populations well. And I think also it requires a, a lot of effort from the individual surgeons. So at each one of us, as we see patients, if you have clinical trials open that the patient is eligible for, you need to be able to dedicate and spend enough time explaining to the patient the importance of participating in clinical trial, but not coerce the patient, not make the patient feel that she's being forced to participate, but just make sure she understands of how important it is, maybe for her, but also for other women in the future and for our field as, as GYN oncology, that this participation may help. So it, it takes a lot of effort to put people on clinical trials and some studies, and we do have some of these studies open in our institution, they're very, very challenging to put patients on because they, they, are, they are demanding on the patient. They require multiple additional visits. They sometimes require additional biopsies and tests and blood draws that were not part of your absolute standard of care to take care of that patient. 
But again, that's where the burden becomes on the physician to try to explain why these things are important. And then hopefully be able to see more and more participation from patients. It's not easy. It's never been easy. Um, a lot of people are trying to work on ways to, to engage patients more and more to participate in clinical trial, but that's very important challenge for you as, as young GYN oncologists to keep that in mind. You absolutely have to block enough time during your visit to talk about clinical trials. It cannot just be part of the uh, explaining to them the total hysterectomy, BSO, and sentinel nodes. You have to block whatever it is, 15, 20 minutes to talk about the studies that are available in order to succeed to accrue more and more patients. Thank you. Uh, and, uh, thank you, Dr. Alberson, for being here with us today. It's a real honor to hear your experience and your advice. Uh, I just have some final questions. Uh, what would you be single, your single accomplishment in the field of Kynog that you're most proud of? You have a very long career, but what would be the single accomplishment? Um, so thank you, Demetrius. I, th I think for me, um, I would say probably the ability to standardize our group of how to manage endometrial cancer uh, with introducing the concept of the Sentinel node mapping algorithm. Believe me, and that's also for our own group, there was a lot of variation in our own team. So the ability to standardize the primary surgery for endometrial cancer um, with sentinel node mapping, I'm very proud of that. And again, um, it's not about being right or wrong. It's just trying to come up with something that can be done by most people that will result in information that will help us understand the disease, may help guide adjuvant therapy. And that's the uh, complete distillation of this is that when People leave the operating room, they've had the hysterectomy, BSO, washings, peritoneal evaluation, and at the minimum, bilateral pelvic nodes to really help give us some guidance on, on what to do after surgery. So, um, and I think we were able to reduce the variation quite a bit. Um, it's not perfect. It's not the answer to every patient or every disease or every histology, but at least it, it brought a little bit more um, of standardization that is at least we are able to communicate a little bit better about this disease. Thank you. That's, uh, that's amazing how your work has influenced thousands, how thousands of women are unmanaged, not uh, in only in your institution, but worldwide. Um, my final question is, if you could turn back time, what advice would you give to yourself when you first graduated fellowship? That's a great question. <laughs> That's a great question. Um, I would certainly still be a GYN oncologist. I think it's a great field and I, I love the specialty and I think we do a lot of good work. I would also still go into academic medicine. I think it's a very novel and honorable thing to be in academic medicine and academic oncology. There's uh, what you choose, uh, you just absolutely have to be comfortable with. There are the pluses and the minuses. Uh, nothing is perfect. So you will always look back and say, you know, maybe I should have done this. Maybe I should have stayed in this institution. Maybe I should have joined this group. Maybe I should have gone out in private practice and 
you know, did this or done that. So there will always be this. But overall, as long as you deepen your heart, we're able to achieve what you want, which to me was always, I've always enjoyed science and biology and, and the medicine. So being able to work in a field that I'm comfortable with, take good care of patients, teach, and that's a, a passion that I have is to, to teach and, and, and whether it's in the operating room or giving lectures, and also to do some research to try to answer the questions that are on our mind and, and not only participate myself, but build teams, build labs, build databases uh, to, to be able to answer those questions, I think is very, very important. For you, my advice is wherever you go, if you are choosing to be in academic GYN oncology, you absolutely must have a database. So if you are working in an organization that does not have a prospective database, you must build a database. For me, that was transformational because our department of surgery was very big on building databases. And as I mentioned earlier in this discussion, I started an endometrial database with uh, when Dr. Barakat was chief. And that, uh, putting every patient that we operated on with endometrial cancer into that database, building thousands and thousands of cases, I can't tell you how much I was able to get insight from looking at that database and trying to understand the disease process better. So I would encourage anybody who wants to be in academic medicine, if they're working in an institution that still doesn't have formal databases for ovarian cancer, for endometrial cancer, for cervix and vulva, is to really invest and build those databases as best as possible, keep them prospective. That would be the treasure that will just deliver for you over the next 10 to 20 years uh, as you wanna try to answer questions specific uh, to your area. So for me, I would, I would probably do everything the same way I did it. I know I could have probably done it easier in a few parts, but you know, um, moving from one country to the other, learning and immigrating and transforming. But I also was very fortunate and lucky. Um, United States has been an amazing place. I've been blessed to be here and have friends and um, be able to raise a family and work with an amazing group of uh, people and also be in an incredible institution. So um, very grateful and thankful to everything that's happened. And also thanks to you all for being here today to uh, have a chance to chat about things other than just exactly how to do sentinel nodes and how to uh, do ovarian cancer surgery. Thank you so much, Dr. Burson, for being here. Yeah, thank you so much. It was amazing. <laughs> yeah, thank, thank you. you. Thank you. You guys had great questions, and uh, um, I'm, I'm sure that, um, you know, if, if others would hear this, hopefully they will get some um, some positive feedback that can help them in one way or another. But I really enjoyed the, the questions and I think you guys are an incredible group. And I, I love this program that you have. I, I think it's it's really amazing. I wish I had something uh, 20 years ago that I could listen to, but uh, <laughs> I think this is terrific. And I know you're taking a lot of time from your busy schedules to do that. So I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Uh, thank, you, thank you so much, Dr. Aviristam. And uh, we really appreciate your time. And we look forward to seeing you in person. Same here. Yeah. Stay well. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you. Bye, guys. <laughs>